views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Captain, I'm picking up a minor subspace disturbance off the port bow. Full stop. Aye, sir. Analysis, Mr. Dale. It appears to be a quantum fissure in the space-time continuum. On screen? The anomaly cannot be seen, but I believe I can enhance it with a warp field to make it visible. Is it dangerous? Not from this distance, sir. I'm also detecting an ion trail intersecting the phenomenon. I believe it was left by a Starfleet Type 6 shuttlecraft. So I was here. I have an explanation, sir. I believe the quantum fissure we discovered is a fixed point across the space-time continuum. A keyhole which intersects many other quantum realities. What do you mean, quantum realities? For any event, there is an infinite number of possible outcomes. Our choices determine which outcomes will follow. But there is a theory in quantum physics that all possibilities that can happen do happen in alternate quantum realities. And somehow I have been shifting from one reality to another. That is correct. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, October 21st, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color and color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today where we are going to investigate the infinite outcomes of parallel universes, as you heard from the opening clip. We're going to be featuring an introduction and preview of Stephen Hawking's grand design near the end of the show. Another subject we want to deal with today is, well, the election, the municipal election. Haven't said a word about it, really don't want to, and I think the only way I can classify this subject is, is, uh, is it apathetic or just pathetic? <laughs> I'm not sure. We're going to take a look at that. And we're also going to investigate a question. Is compassion always right as a follow-up to uh, a lot of feedback and interest we got to last week's show when we talked about poverty? And of course, CHRW is in the midst of its Fun Drive 2010, where we'll be talking about the show itself and the kind of mail we've been getting. We'll be responding to some of that mail, Robert, and giving people uh, a little preview of some of the shows we've done in the past in case they missed them and would like to catch up on them. Post view. Post view, I guess, yes, sorry. Well, it's a preview if they haven't heard the show before, right? I guess so. I guess. But um, In some universe. In some universe, yeah. <laughs> we'll get to that later. You know, this show, uh, Just Right, was launched on CHRW here on April 19, 2007, following CHRW's offering me an opportunity to help fill an opening created when Jim Chapman temporarily retired from his radio career to pursue an election you know, opportunity. Well, it's now October 20th in 2010, meaning that the show is literally at the 3.5 year mark. And some people are going three and a half years. So what? Who cares? Who celebrates who celebrates a three and a half year anniversary? Well, the other issue is that we've reached an unacknowledged milestone here at Just Right recently. It was one year ago this month that I was joined by Robert Vaughn. So uh, happy anniversary, Robert. Well, thank you, Bob. And uh, so I, what I want to know is, uh, do you have anything to say in your defense? <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, when I first joined the show, um, I would have to stop work 
to to listen to the show. So I figure I may as well just sit here and be part of it, <laughs> as out out in the city, just stopping my work well, to listen to you. It's a different experience, though, isn't it, being in here than it's a it is lot being of work. out there? A lot well, of work you put into this. Besides the work, it's um, you know, I'm preparing for today's show. I actually had to listen to some past episodes that I hadn't really listened to. And um, I'm always surprised by the things that I miss, even when I'm sitting here talking to the guests. Your concentration is elsewhere when you yeah. have guests here, and you're you're thinking about the program, you're thinking about cues and things of that nature. And when you you go home and you listen to the show, boy, I'm t- I'm telling you, there's some good radio coming out of here. I think so. I, if I say so myself. Well, <laughs> you you have every right to say so, and and I hope you've enjoyed the first year and looked forward to many more until they throw us out of here or something. I don't know. <laughs> but speaking of histories as well, it was also in October. October 31st, 1981, in fact, that CHRW began broadcasting in the first place. 50 watts was, was the, the range that the, the transmitter had at that time. In 1990, they moved up to 3,000 watts, and now CHRW broadcasts at almost 6,000 watts from their tower on top of one London place. Um, now, don't be looking up there in the tower. Robert and I aren't anywhere near that. <laughs> For those who don't know, just in case, um, we are broadcasting from the University of Western Ontario and uh, in the UCC building, which is where the station is located. Past funding drive supports have also contributed to the on-air console, production facilities, and now the station wants to improve its uh, remote broadcast capabilities. Now, CHRW is not tax-supported or financed. You will you know, not find that the kind of programming here that you can find on CHRW uh, you know, anywhere else in Radioland, I don't think. Don't, what about you, Robert? you know anybody that does sort of what we do and what some of the other shows on this station do? All I know is that the CBC gets $1.1 billion subsidy. Ah. Compare them to uh, the quality program that comes out of here, and I, do, I think we're doing pretty darn good. Or they're doing something wrong. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but listen, the station needs your help. We need your help. It, it all works together. If you enjoy this show, you should know that donations over $20 qualify for a tax receipt. You can call us at 519-661-3600. Pledge your support to CHRW. And if the lines are busy, just call again. If the lines aren't busy, call your friends and get them jammed up right away. <laughs> so, but right now I'm going to be very compassionate to Robert by turning over the show to him. And he's going to tackle a question that we sort of stepped into last week, eh, Robert? About the whole issue of compassion, is it? Compassion, yeah. yeah. I got a, a, a note from um, a listener in Italy, of all places, uh, Ralph. Hi, Ralph. And um, he was talking about compassion and had a question about it, and I thought I'd address that today, especially coming out of last week's show on poverty, which apparently was listened to and... Uh, Downloaded by quite a lot of people. Yeah, we got quite a few responses on that one. I, I, I yeah. did not expect it, I'll tell you. Well, any talk on poverty, Bob, such as the one we had last week, will inevitably bring up discussion about compassion. And I received Ralph's note, and um, he asked, is giving implied in the word compassion? Uh, to this, I'd have to say no. Compassion is an emotion akin to sympathy, which arises out of uh, a love of one's own life. We feel compassion for others who are suffering because we recognize that life has a value. And as you love your own life, you can put yourself in the other person's place and feel sympathy, or empathy as the case may be, for that other person. Compassion may very well be accompanied by a desire to alleviate the suffering of the other person, but we have to ask ourselves if the, if the person who is suffering worthy of our compassion. Compassion is not unconditional. 
We should not have compassion for criminals who are suffering because they are paying the penalty for the crime. If we feel compassion for the victims of torture, we should not feel compassion for the torturer. To do so would be to negate the compassion we feel towards the victims. Picture the Hollywood movie where the murderer is hanging from a balcony ledge and the good guy has a hold of him. In most of these Hollywood pictures, the good guy will take pity on the murderer and put his own life at risk by bringing the murderer up from the brink. This would be an immoral act, and rather than a display of compassion, it's a demonstration that the so-called good guy does not in fact love his own life. He puts it at risk by letting the murderer live. The murderer may end up trying to kill him, as is often the case in these cheesy movies, or he may escape justice only to kill others. So compassion does not mean that one should sacrifice their lives for the sakes, sake of strangers, nor does it give the sufferer a blank check on the largesse of a man with compassion. Just because someone is suffering loss or suffering does not give that person a right to be helped or the right for others to feel sympathy for him. Giving is only moral if what you're giving does not constitute a sacrifice on your part. If a hobo asks for some spare change and you have spare change, you could easily part with, with no real loss to you. It's fine to feel compassion for his helplessness and give him some spare change, not a problem. If your neighbor's house catches fire, a little more dramatic than the hobo, and he's left standing on the street with naught but the clothes on his back, a person could easily put himself in that person's shoes, feel compassion for him, and help him out by perhaps offering him some, some clothes, food, or a place to stay until more permanent arrangements could be made. If such acts constitute a sacrifice on your part, however, then you should not feel obligated nor feel guilty that you cannot offer assistance. In cases of emergencies such as floods, earthquakes, tornadoes, and the like, then it would not be immoral to offer aid to the point where normalcy, normality is once again achieved. The earthquake in Haiti is a good example. Normalcy there was poverty at a subsistence level. While we, we may feel compassion for the Haitians before the earthquake, taking them out of poverty was not an obligation, nor would it be practical considering that their poverty was mostly a condition they brought upon themselves by suffering under a corrupt political system, which, by the way, still exists. When the earthquake occurred, however, the situation became a temporary catastrophe. In such cases, giving personal, private aid would be ethical as long as it was not a sacrifice to you. Aid to strangers in emergencies should only be given to alleviate the emergency, to bring the situation back to normal. Our capacity for compassion is often preyed upon by what I would refer to as professional sufferers. I think you know what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. Bob. Those among us who consider their lot in life to be poor and not only expect but demand that others help them. These people have no self-respect and have no intention of trying to better their lot on their own. Worse, however, than these professional sufferers are the people who set up agencies to keep these people in poverty and need. These are the agencies which turn to government to extract aid by the barrel of a gun. They rely on people's natural desire for, for feeling compassion and use it as a weapon of guilt. Private agencies who do not appeal to government for assistance and who fundraise themselves to help others provide a service for those not only in need, but for those who want to help and find these agencies a convenient way to do so. 
the difficulty lies in trying to determine which agency is a legitimate agency for the poor and which is a parasite on both the government and the poor. When guilt is used to extract aid from someone, that person's understanding of compassion is under attack and it can be difficult to understand that compassion comes from within and should not be forced from you. Compassion should be an indicator of the level to which you love your own life. It can be a motivator for decent acts of kindness. And, Bob, we should learn to recognize it for these qualities. Uh, I agree with everything you say. I think I, could, I can tell there's probably some people listening and wondering. Um, for example, you say you shouldn't sacrifice in terms of helping someone else. I think that is often misunderstood. For example, say I see someone in distress, and in order to help them, I do have to sacrifice, quote-unquote, something. Say I'll give up my lunch that day, because I, you know, I had some lunch money, I gave it to this guy instead, right? Do we have to define sacrifice? Well, what have I actually done there? And this is very, very important to me as a distinction. I have actually placed a value higher than my own interest at that point. At that point, I, I have actually valued the well-being of that person greater than my own. That's not a sacrifice. And that is not a sacrifice. Or your luxury. That's what, that was my, well, but you know what I mean. (laughs) To sacrifice means to give up something of a higher value for something of a lower or equal value. Yes. That is a sacrifice, and that is immoral. And and, and you hear, you you often hear the phrase incorrectly used when, you know, parents say, well, we sacrificed a big house for our kids because we sent them to university or college or something like that. Wrong. Obviously, they they didn't sacrifice anything because they valued their child's education better than the house. They valued their child. That's not a sacrifice. Exactly. And I think that clarity has to be made. No, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. And before we continue, we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this discussion and deal with a few of the letters we've gotten from some of our listeners. Sir, we are being hailed on screen. I'm First Officer William Riker of the USS Enterprise. We're responding to your distress signal. Uh-huh. What is your problem? We are far from home. Aren't we all? But you sent out a mayday? Uh-huh. Do you need help? We are packlets. Our ship is the Mondor. It is broken. We are far from home. We need help. Let me guess, their rubber band broke, right? Sensors indicate engineering problems. They are experiencing total guidance system failure with less than 24 hours reserved power. Maybe I can help. What brings you so far from home? We look for things. What were you looking for? Things we need. Can you be more specific? Things that make us go. We need help. What is the nature of your mission? We look for things. Did you hear an echo? Commander, from the list of their ship, I could have them up and running in no time. You sure? Yeah, no problem. Very well. Our chief engineer will beam over to help you. I hate to repair and run, but uh, you'll excuse me? One to beam aboard. Hey, don't! 
Beam LaForge back immediately. Negative response, sir. Try again. Negative response. The Packlet ship has a shield up, sir. A shield, what kind? It appears to be beyond their technology. Similar to Romulan shields. Do not interfere with our transporter beam! Drop your shields! Status. Viewer transmission terminated and blocked. And welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW, where 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to make a donation to the station. And donations over $20 qualify for a tax receipt. And if you call that number, you can make your pledge and please do so. You know, here at CHRW, we would never treat you like the Packwoods just treated Jordy. <laughs> Even though we need things to make us go. Because <laughs> that's what... Did you notice in that... That was a very clever episode of, of Next Generation, I remember actually. the episode, and I liked it very and, much. And the title said it all, Samaritan Snare. Snare yeah. And what happened was, first they ask for help, and they say, we need help. And after they get the help, all of a sudden they don't need help anymore. They need you. They need the person, and they imprison him. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, what an incredible analogy to our welfare system. And basically the whole, you know, state state welfare... But uh, we certainly got a lot of um, response to our show last week. Regular listener Marco wrote, uh, Loved your recent show on the poverty issue. Thanks for saying what needed to be said. I swear if I ever write a book, I'm quoting this show. Uh, well, thanks for that, Marco. don't know what you would particularly quote because, boy, we went through so many things last week. I don't know how many of those issues um, might have impressed a particular individual. And obviously not everyone was favorably impressed. We also got a response from a regular listener, Tara, who writes, and I'll read her letter and hopefully reply to it adequately, and she writes as following. Hello, I listened to your broadcast last week, and while I was at first delighted to hear the discussion of poverty, my delight soon turned to frustration when I heard some of your points, such as how unemployment was bound to go up upon raising the minimum wage, and how social programs are basically the reason for poverty. I was wondering if you could address for me a few things that always echo in my mind when I hear this kind of reasoning. From 2006, or from 2002 to 2006, the cost of living has gone up by 9.2%, while the average income has only gone up 1.7%. In contrast, executive pay has risen at a faster rate than pay for other occupations every year since the early 90s. The average increase in CEO pay at Standard & Poor 500 firms from 1993 to 2003 was 146%. You see hospitals saying that they need wage freezes in order to keep employees, but no one suggests that perhaps the CEOs don't need such extravagant raises. No one ever addresses this point. Should or should we not have a minimum wage, and why? Minimum wage, in order to fulfill its original intention, should be at least $11 to have any real effect on poverty. Some cities estimate that half of their homeless actually have jobs. They just can't afford housing. And finally, how can anyone suggest that capitalism is a cure for poverty, while under its flourishing, poverty has only grown? With cuts to social programs, poverty has grown. With free trade, poverty has grown. Had to put that out there, and in all honesty, after studying sociology for four years, I just cannot grasp the cling to an unsustainable, damaging system. Best wishes, Tara. And uh, I, I can see her point. I can see the questions she's asking. I feel compassion for her. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I have to say, after studying sociology for four years, Tara, you have every reason to be confused about why anyone would be clinging to this unsustainable, damaging system. Sociology is largely a study of groups, not of individuals, which accounts for the complete absence of any moral consideration behind any of their pragmatic goals, shall we say, the collectivist thinking. We ended our show last week with the suggestion that people should avail themselves of reading very specific titles of Ayn Rand's books. You might be surprised to discover how quickly four years of studying sociology can be completely erased and refuted in four pages of her book, Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal. I went through the same process. I I I had to throw out 15 years of school, of nonsensical schooling that just was made so clear to me when I read three or four paragraphs out of this book. And the title of that book was written for people like Tara. Capitalism, the unknown ideal. And what Tara has written to us certainly demonstrates that her concept of capitalism is gravely mistaken. First of all, capitalism is a complete separation of state and economics. And it is based upon the principle that each individual, not groups, have a fundamental right to their own life, liberty, and property and that they have no right to anyone else's life, liberty, and property without that individual's explicit consent. Now, after reviewing the sociology course material on UWO's website, it's pretty clear to me that what's being called sociology is in practice, I couldn't believe it, just anti-capitalist propaganda and very little else. They're teaching stuff that, you know, has, as the old saying goes, just ain't so. It sounds to me it's not sociology, but it's socialism that they're teaching. Yes, and um, but called sociology, uh, I, I've got some examples of, of, of what they are teaching. But, uh, you know, to be able to say that poverty, quote, has only grown under, under capitalism's, quote, flourishing is classic Marxist thinking, which is factually and epistemologically false, as in, you know, incorrect, as in not in accordance with reality. It's simply so untrue and so unsubstantiated by any fact of reality that, you know, one can only wonder what you're referring to because it's not capitalism. And since uh, Tara hasn't provided an example of how or where poverty grows when capitalism is flourishing, I'm not going to bother her with any examples either. Since last week, we gave all kinds of examples from the Irish potato famine to modern examples, and obviously they didn't convince anybody of anything, given that we're not even talking the same language. And then we come back to epistemology again, don't we? Capitalism is not a quote-unquote system in the way that all other isms are systems, Uh, isms that violate individual rights, that is. Capitalism is more accurately defined, I guess, as an economic consequence of individual freedom, a system of private property and the right to consent to your economic transactions. And the minute, the second you have initiatory force introduced into the quote system, you no longer have capitalism. It's, you can't put an adjective on it. You can't, you know, you can't be partly dead. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work that way. As Ayn Rand so often explained whenever we refer to the so-called have-not nations of the world, what they have not is individual freedom and capitalism. And that's a universal principle that's consistent and has no exceptions. And, you know, why should, should anyone express frustration at the simple fact that unemployment was, quote, bound to go up upon raising the minimum wage, end quote? Uh, The reasons for this, I think, are perfectly understandable, and reality confirms the observation, and even the people who support minimum wage, as we illustrated last week, also know this and admit to it. There's no disagreement here. 
Only Tara and her sociology folks seem to disagree with this fact. And what's to get upset about? And, and, and another question is, why would you settle for just $11 an hour if you want to affect poverty? Why not 30 Why not 50 Or, hey, go for $100 an hour. Not only would we not have poverty, we wouldn't even have a lower middle class. <laughs> we could get rid of them. Everybody would be upper middle class and above. And if some single individual is willing and able to work for less, you know, than some arbitrary minimum wage, why should there be a law to stop him or her? If we, you know, we do legally allow people to work for free. There's nothing wrong with that. We're doing that right now. And for minimum wage or more. So what's the morality behind criminalizing work offered for something in between zero and minimum wage? <laughs> what, what's the rationality for that? I've never heard that. Unless it's somebody trying to steal something from somebody else, either directly or indirectly. But they use a euphemism called minimum wage yes. to disguise outright theft. That money has to come from somewhere. Well, it comes from an employer. You know, I don't know what pushing a broom is worth if it was only a casual thing. It couldn't be worth much more than two bucks an hour. I mean, what would that be worth? Because you can you can do it yourself half the time, you know. And and there's just certain jobs. Once if you if everyone's being paid eleven dollars an hour, any person who was incapable of producing at least that plus some in an hour of their labor becomes unemployable, because an employer simply cannot take them on at a loss. Because then he would be doing what you said. He'd be compassionate and be giving a sacrifice. And that's not real employment. Then you're just a, then you're just a, you know, a, um, a recipient of unearned money. And finally, citing statistics about the relative pay raises of various CEOs versus anyone else is is not an argument for or against anything. All it reveals is is envy, and that's not too cool. When you write that, quote, no one ever addresses the point of CEOs' extravagant raises, what you really mean is Robert and I did not address it because we know that everybody raises this non-essential issue. In fact, today, if you listen to the other radio stations, that's all they're talking about, the auditor's report and the waste of the CEOs in the hospitals, which, by the way, are government-run. Can we make a note of that? That's not capitalism. Shall we say that again? And... You know, it's just ridiculous. Everybody talks about it, and it's a non-essential issue. It's, it's the fallacy of the fixed pie, that there's only so many dollars out there, and if CEOs are getting them, other people are not. That's exactly right, and that's one of those things they teach, must teach in sociology. I, I saw some of those. You know, and I've got newspaper clippings of letters to the editor and by politicians who dwell on nothing but this non-issue. Boring, irrelevant, petty, just don't go there. It's like arguing about what they're doing with your stolen money. As soon as they've taken that money out of your pocket and it went into the, quote, system, it's not yours anymore, you can't complain about it, they can do what they want with it. Um, you're just wasting your time until people pay direct in some way. It cannot be fixed, and it's not fixable. So, you know, I can see by the sociology course outline that the opinions that Tara has expressed... Uh, to us in her letter are in perfect, in a perfect accordance rather, with what she has been taught. And I'm afraid she's not alone. Most of the political world, at least, agrees with what she's expressed. And it's me and Robert who are the odd ones out here. Which is why, I guess, you'll only find us on alternative radio. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and that's why we're here. And just a reminder before we go to the next break, CHRW's in the middle of its Fun Drive 2010, and this is a community access radio station. And uh, CHRW provides diverse programming for groups who don't have access to mainstream media, people like me and Robert. 
the station has a number of cultural programs that serve London's cultural communities. They have London's only gay and lesbian radio program. They provide coverage to the city art groups and tackle social issues that no one else would touch. Like, that could be this show, maybe, I think. Yeah. And so now they're asking the community to support us. Again, donations over $20 qualify for a tax receipt. Call us at 519-661-3600. Pledge your support to CHRW. If the lines are busy, make sure to call again. And we'll give you a sample of what kind of um, things we've brought to the community that I don't think anyone else has. Uh, Never did this before, Robert, but I guess the show's been around long enough now that we can actually do a little bit of a retrospective. And if, if you're new to the show and you don't know what the show is about, we often have guests... Um, and controversial guests, guests you don't often hear in other forums, let us say. And the ones we'll be hearing just before the break are some outtakes from past shows of Just Right, including our guests Lawrence Solomon, Ann Coulter, Lars Vilks, and on the other side of the break we'll be hearing from Mark Emery, John Thompson, Rory Leishman, and Professor Christopher Essex. So we'll take leave of you now, and we'll be back right after this. I think that most of the scientists, uh, or certainly a great number of the scientists who are uh, preaching doom, uh, seriously believe it. I think that they, they feel that Earth really is uh, in danger, and, and that without uh, scare tactics, uh, n- nothing, uh, nothing will be done. So I think, I think that a great number of them uh, really are uh, sincere. Now, but, but, but still you refer to them clinging to these quote-unquote lies that are being spread. Do they know their lies? Are you saying that they know that they're lies and they're, and they're you know, just being um, belligerent about it and, and sticking to they, they, they believe that they're lying in a good cause. Ah. They think that they're lying to, to save the planet. Now, if it were up to you, would abortion be illegal? What would be what would be your ideal penalty, say, for a woman who had an abortion or a doctor who performed one? Would death? Death. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, t- I warned you about her humor. Bob. I, I'm so glad you added. I'm just kidding because, to be honest with you, your answer is perfectly consistent with that belief. No, uh, it is. not not really. The no, point well, it, is. It, Look, I, I think bank robbery should be illegal, but it, but I don't know exactly, you know, what the penalties are, how you, um, you know, what the, what the levels of mitigation and aggravation in the crime are. I mean, these are state criminal law issues. Yeah, I'm I'm, not, I'm actually not a cartoonist. I'm oh. I'm an artist. An artist, working yes. more conceptually with things. But I, I made a drawing in 2007, and that is still following my life, yes. Now, your house has actually been uh, firebombed, I understand, Mr. Vilks, and you, uh, I saw you get assaulted at a lecture on YouTube. There's a video of you getting assaulted, and you get constant death threats. How do you, how do you live with such a, an umbrella, uh, a sort of Damocles hanging over your head like that? Yeah, you get used to it. At least I do. Um, this started in 2007, and it was, of course, very scary to to meet this situation, but then I've been living with this for a long time, and this year is, it escalated. But um, <clears throat> actually, uh, I think I'm taking it quite well, and I'm working very close with the <clears throat> Swedish secret police, so um, I don't feel that bad. 
And on the line with us from Vancouver is the Prince of Pot, Mark Emery. You still there, Mark? They, oh, yes. They haven't they taken you away clip. yet. <laughs> yeah, that, see, I realized when I was watching that videotape that that's, in fact, the genesis of my current strategy, that doing that calendar. And eventually I started researching uh, organizations and movements that had succeeded, too, um, like the IRA, the feminist movement. So from violent movements like the Irish Republican uh, Army uh, campaign, uh, the feminist campaign, the homosexual campaign for acceptance, and... You know, what I did learn, fortunately, was that violent revolutions don't achieve anything worthwhile that lasts because they establish violence as a means of change, and unfortunately you start something going there that you can't stop. And that typically is what happens is violence does beget violence. And statism begets more statism. Um, whenever we go to the government for the answer to our problem, we get more government, which invariably grins us more problems. I've always been curious about how you do your work. Um, you study organized violence. You you study criminal behavior. You study um, like I, I don't I can't imagine organized criminals are coming up to you and giving you confessions and telling you, you know how how they operate. How do you find these things out? Who, who's who's who are your informants? Would that be the word? I don't know. Sources. Sources. This is one of the uh, the big open secrets about intelligence gathering. If you go over in Langley, Virginia, and look at the roof of the CIA building, among other things, you'll see dishes to intercept television signal. You know, it's, it's mm -hmm. one of the uh, secrets that, uh, well, not one of the classified secrets, but it's not generally discussed that American news agencies, when their feed is coming in from uh, reporters abroad, all the raw feed is also picked up the CIA and looked at. Most intelligence agencies, anyone who's actually involved in any sort of intelligence function, will tell you that 90% of what they do is all open source. And all I was suggesting in my column is that we have a vigorous debate in Canada and have Parliament conduct a proper investigation uh, as to how all of us, Muslim and non-Muslim, can combat those that uh, are attacking our, uh, our, our, our democracy, in the, uh, whether in the name of Islam or any other extremist ideology. So the, when you're talking about uh, different areas trying to get them under a single theory, is that, is that this unified theory out there? Are we still approaching this unified theory of everything out there? Or is that well, the, I, I, I mean, that sounds that sounds like uh, something out of I don't know, Discover magazine, you know, mm -hmm. the unified theory of everything, you know, buy this magazine, you know. I mean, uh, I, I think it's really more a question ultimately of people just trying to figure out what the truth is, and uh, it's a sort of a little more basic than that. I mean, it's just you know, these things don't line up. Why don't they line up? What can we discover as a result of making them agree with each other and and uh, and so forth? I mean, of course, everyone has these kind of grand designs, but I think we're getting into some really um, epistemological problematic problems. Epistemologically problematic problems. <laughs> Problem I love that. that. I'm glad you could even say that word, because I don't hear that word too epistemologically often. Epistemologically problematic problems. Yeah, anyway, so I mean, the, the, the point, when we start saying we know what everything is about everything and what all the rules are and what the universe is and... I think we're um, we're being, shall we say, very bold and uh, and positive thinking when we do, we talk that way. 
Welcome back. And that was just a sample of some of the guests that we've had uh, just over the past few months, actually, Robert. I didn't have to go back further than that. And uh, just to remind you that, uh, you know, we're in the middle of Fun Drive 2010, and all of the programming that you hear on CHRW is produced by volunteer community members. And that's what makes the station very unique. It is radio for the community programmed by the community. This is programming that is untouched by marketing groups and demographic surveys. This is the real thing, radio for its own sake. And if you believe in that sort of thing, you give us a call at 519-661-3600. Because you can get more info about Fun Drive 2010 at chrwradio.com as well. Again, call us, 519-661-3600. Pledge your support to CHRW. Call again if the lines are busy. And Robert, uh, I just had to get that last clip in there with Professor Christopher Essex talking about, of all things, <laughs> the grand design, which you'll be talking about in just a few minutes. Very apropos. Yes. Well, before we do that, I just, I just couldn't let the whole day go by without at least addressing this issue briefly. We'll probably talk about it again after the election next week, maybe later, I don't know. But, you know, we hear talk about apathetic voters, and I, I'm jokingly saying, is it the voters or is a whole election just a pathetic exercise saw saw an article in the paper you know yesterday i think it was or day before maybe so where have all the ideas gone says the headline on the front page of the free press and i was just thinking well just what ideas you know people in politics or they don't take ideas seriously and they haven't for quite a long time Sad to say, we have a philosophically illiterate, non-conceptual, and completely cynical electorate today. You can I just hear it everywhere I go. And I think that they are the fundamental cause of our electoral problems, but not exclusively. Ideas upset people. Isn't that true? <laughs> we get it here all the time. Because, you know, everybody has their own ideas. Ideas are... Are, are an odds-driven likelihood that you'll find some idea worth voting against in an election, whereas finding that that single idea you might support is the long shot in the probabilities of, of politics, if I may start edging into this, um, you know, physics talk <laughs> coming up soon. Um, it's clear from reading and hearing everyone's comments about the municipal elections that no one believes, for example, that tax cuts can possibly be done. And I think that attitude alone guarantees our pessimistic future. Uh, the way I look at it, Robert, what's the alternative? More taxes, higher inflation, eventual bankruptcy. It seems to me that's where we're going. You know, everybody talks about sustainability, sustainability. Well, I don't see any sustainability in government. I would say we can't not cut taxes. And anyone who would argue with that, I would say, is irresponsible and uncaring. Well, you know, I always you think know. that it's not necessarily the taxes. Taxes are a symptom. It's the spending that you have to cut. Yes. And then the taxes, of course, will follow. Unfortunately, one thing I remember Milton Friedman pointing out was that that's the theory, but in practice it never works that way. That's right. In you practice, have to force them to cut the spending to, by stopping the taxes. And because, as we see, the only thing that does stop them is running out of money. Yes. End of story. It's like Britain today. Yes. And I think that's the only alternative that faces us at this juncture. According to our mayor, if you cut taxes, services will be cut. Uh, you know, I wish that were true, but it hides the biggest lie of the election. Because here's the ugly truth. If we don't cut taxes, services will still be cut. 
just as they have been for years and years and years. Uh, you know, I hear elderly folk complaining about all the services that have been cut, but their prices keep going up, their taxes keep going up, and then we get idiot politicians saying, oh, if we cut taxes, your services will be cut. That's a non-starter for me because our services are already being cut. Whether we pay more or less, our services are being cut. Thanks to the green religion at the altar of self-sacrifice, thank you, our tax rates are skyrocketing while individual citizens are forced to sort their garbage, prevented from being putting pesticides on their lawns, you know. It, 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 oh, I'm, I'm sick. I'm sick. <laughs> sick, sick, sick. And so right now the rule is higher taxes, lower services. But, says our mayor, if we have four consecutive tax freezes in year five, we're going to have a major mess. That's what she said in the London Free Press October 6th. Well, what is she planning in year five? Why, why can't we continue on with no tax freezes? If we could survive four years without a major mess, what, what's going to happen in that fifth year? Well, she sees somebody getting elected who's going to go on a spending spree again. Yeah, she implies right? that the four years without tax increases will be rosy. Almost, but, in, but of course that's not the case. The idea of cutting back on spending just seems alien to politicians. And when you see the frivolous things that they spend on... That's the crux of the problem, uh, well, Bob. Well, it is and it isn't because... They have to identify if what If it was their the own money, they could go spend fr frivolously all yeah. they want. But, you know... Um, in Europe, as we're seeing today, they followed the DeSeco de course, constant increases in government spending followed by unaffordable taxes. All of our governments at every level of government operate on a single economic, no, not economic, criminal <laughs> principle, a Ponzi scheme in which the first to get the benefits place all the burden on the subsequent victims of the scheme. Bernie Madoff was given a life sentence for what he did to his investors. How many politicians will be going to jail for doing much worse to everybody's pocketbooks? That's about all I got time to say on this oh, election well today. Said. But um, I'll say more next week. I'm sure that we're going to see a bit of uh, the old status quo back. But you never know. It might be a surprise or two. You know, I think that they have to really understand what the purpose of a provincial government or a uh, municipal government is, and stick with those essentials and stop all of the bread and circuses type of stuff, nonsense they get on with. I agree. Let's take a break and leave this planet for a while, I guess, and take a look at what Stephen Hawking has to say about our very existence. There's some really fascinating stuff here, according to what Robert tells me. Is that true? It's true. Oh, good. I'm waiting for this. G sub I J of T as T approaches infinity. Hmm? G of T over G naught. So it is. So it is. But I still don't see how you're going to incorporate quantum principle into general relativity without adjusting the cosmological constant a lot more than you're doing here. Well, if we increase the value, as you suggest, we must face the possibility of 26 dimensions instead of 10. I don't think I could deal with that. <laughs> I certainly could not. <laughs> if the semi-set curved into the subatomic, the infinities might cancel each other out. Gruß Gott. They just night. <clears throat> we had a meeting at 0700. I'm sorry, Commander. Thank you, Professor. Mm. End program.
This looks like some serious stuff. Leonard, did you do this? Actually, that's my work. Wow. Yeah, well, it's just some quantum mechanics with a little string theory doodling around the edges. That part there, that's just a joke. It's a spoof of the Born-Oppenheimer approximation. So you're like one of those beautiful mind genius guys. Yeah. This is really impressive. I have a board. If you like boards, this is my board. Holy smokes. If by holy smokes you mean a derivative restatement of the kind of stuff you can find scribble on the wall of any men's room at MIT, sure. What? Come on. Who hasn't seen this differential below here I sit broken-hearted? At least I didn't have to invent 26 dimensions just to make the math come out. I didn't invent them. They're there. In what universe? In all of them, that is the point. Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. That's a little clip. I love that show, the Big Bang Theory. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, Bob, i got to get you some of those. This is one of the funniest shows on uh, television, especially if you understand just the slightest bit of what they're talking about. <laughs> I just thought it was amazing that in there they referred to the 26 dimensions necessary yes. to complete the mathematics, which was the same thing they were talking about in uh, in Next Generation. So is that all for real? Or what have you... you you've actually uh, gone out and you've you've read Stephen Hawking's book. I see you have it with well, you Well, I've read right not here. only that book, but other books on uh, quantum uh, quantum physics and... I cannot say that I understand it, because I don't. But I can say that I find it fascinating, and as a lay person, um, I find it very interesting. Even though I actually majored in physics at university, at least for a while before I switched majors. <laughs> so I, I find it just absolutely... Well, is that why you know all that stuff? Well, like I say, I don't know it. That's, well, that's the problem. But you know this more is than the average person. This is designed for the lay person, um, as much as you can talk about such... Now you're talking about the book, concepts. right? Yeah, the yeah. book. It's, it's higher order concepts, but it's designed for the layperson. And um, in reading it, I, I, I just had to talk about it on the show because it is so fascinating. But it starts off, the grand design. By the way, the grand design is written by Stephen Hawking and Leonard Mladenow. But um, I'll just refer to Hawking as the uh, the author, even though uh, it's co-written. Well, there is an L in there. You're right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but it starts off with what I consider actually to be bad footing. Hawking begins by posing the questions, uh, what is the nature of reality? Where did it all come from? Did the universe need a creator? And he suggested that these are questions for philosophers, but philosophy, according to Hawking, is dead. And he, a quote from him, philosophy is not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics, unquote. Well, he's been in the sociology department. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll forgive him. I'll forgive Hawking his mistakes since philosophy is far from dead. Many philosophies have fallen by the, uh, the wayside, but Aristotelian philosophies, most notably Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, has not only kept up with science, it has surpassed it as it deals not with the mechanics of the universe, per se, but with the fact of the universe. It's actually ironic, Bob, that Hawking begins by dismissing philosophy only to come up with the same conclusions at the end of his book that Ayn Rand espoused decades ago. I find that amazing. I think people don't realize how much Ayn Rand actually discussed physics and science and, and, and had workshops with yes. physicists and scientists who were asking her about, the, about what the meaning of their work was because they couldn't figure it out themselves. She, she helped them through that stuff. Yes, indeed. Um, some of those conclusions, that existence exists, that the universe follows, the universe follows laws of causality and is deterministic. 
that free will exists as a concept and a model to describe the unpredictable nature of man's behavior, and that there is no need of a god. All conclusions of Hawking and of Rand. Where Rand does Hawking one better is to expand on these metaphysical axioms and discoveries and apply them to other branches of philosophy, which are apparently taken for granted by some cosmologists, that is, epistemology, ethics, politics, and aesthetics. Hawking's book is not so much a book about the philosophy of metaphysics than it is a book about the science of physics at the time of the creation of the universe. He teaches us about the attempts by physicists to correctly model the universe and to come up with a single unified theory of everything. We read about Descartes, Laplace, Newton, and Einstein, but quickly get into the fascinating world of Richard Feynman and quantum physics. I remember quite clearly, Bob, reading about quantum physics for the first time about 25 years ago and finding it suspicious in much the same way, albeit not with as, 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 as elegantly as Schrodinger did. Where Schrodinger devised his dead and alive cat thought experiment, I simply threw down my book. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't grasp it. I just thought it was epistemologically, uns epistemologically unsound. Although I wish I had tried a little harder to understand quantum theory, as today it seems that it's an excellent model for many aspects of the universe. Hawking describes a good model if it, one, is elegant, two, contains few arbitrary or adjustable elements, three, agrees with and explains all existing observations, four, makes detailed predictions about future observations that can, be, that can disprove or falsify the model if they are not borne out. A quantum theory satisfies more of these criteria, as subjective as they may be, better than any other preceding theory. As such, it deserves proper consideration regardless of how unnatural its implications seem. Consider the experiment Hawking describes in his book of buckyballs and the two slits. Uh, buckyballs are collections of 60 carbon atoms. So what we're dealing with here is far beyond the subatomic reign of quantum theory. We're dealing with uh, objects, more or less, small as they are. Yet when these buckyballs are projected towards the double slits, they behave as if they were the same as light waves and create interference patterns. I can't go into the details of the, experiments, uh, the experiment itself, the double slit experiment, because it's actually a little complex. To we'll do something like that around. in a future show for mm, sure. I think it's worth it. But suffice it to say that this is a phenomenal outcome, an outcome predicted, by the way, by the quantum theory of alternative histories. It's Richard, like our opening clip. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's not far from apparently the truth. Yeah, it's kind of scary. It is. Richard Feynman, uh, who, by the way, was very famous, died in 1988, I believe, um, Nobel Prize winner. Richard Feynman explains the interference patterns in his theory of quantum electro, uh, electromagnetism, and Hawking deals with it thus, quote, rather than following a single definite path, particles take every path, and they take them all simultaneously. That is bizarre. Feynman called this the sum over histories. Along with other startling outcomes of quantum theory comes string theory with its 11 dimensions and M theory with its 12 dimensions and string membranes. No 26 dimensions. No eh? 26. <laughs> I don't know where they came up with that, actually. Even well, I think it was, I think you mentioned it because you had to, for some reason, they ended up with that to fit the math. <laughs> Which, by point. the way, is not a proper way no. to, to really think about the whole thing. 
So with M theory, uh, M usually I think that came from the word membrane, or actually they 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 abbreviate the word membrane as brains now. So they're talking oh, about brains, yeah, B R A N E S. But M theory, um, the beginning of our universe. Only one of an infinite number of universes, by the way, began when two membranes of strings actually collided. Quantum theory is changing the way we think about the laws of the universe. We can talk about events beyond the Big Bang and beyond our own universe into the multiverse. And by beyond, I mean back in time, before the Big Bang. There are now theories to explain what happens before the Big Bang, mm -hmm. how the Big Bang occurred, the fact that there are other out universes out there, an infinite number, though I did uh, read in, in the Grand Design, Stephen Hawking's book, that it's not infinite, it's um, 10 to the 500. It's a, a phenomenal number. But anyway, the multiverse, that's a concept. Where it might seem that the random nature of quantum theory would throw determinism out the window, it's forcing us to accept a new form of determinism. Hawking writes, quote, given the state of a system at some time, the laws of nature determine the probabilities of various futures and pasts rather than determining the futures and pasts with certainty. Though th that is distasteful to some, he says, scientists must accept theories that agree with experiment, not their own preconceived mm -hmm. notions, unquote. So regarding the grand design or reading it, can at the same time make one feel very small. And <laughs> yet it does, because you're talking about not just the universe, which really we can't get our head around, but the multiverse. And yet considering that man is now only beginning to grasp the enormity and majesty of reality, it can also make one feel lucky to be alive in an era of such discovery and thought. For the layperson, the concept in this books will not be easy to grasp. I recommend it read two or three times because I, I'm going to do it and read in conjunction and read in conjunction with other books on quantum theory as difficult and somewhat disturbing as this book is I suggest it I suggest it sits on everyone's bookshelf well thumbed and with lots of little scribblings in the margins just like mine I'm sure it's going to end up on my shelf one of these days because I have all of his other books as well which it does take two or three readings brief to history even, of time is quite uh, yeah, a very slot. brief <laughs> <laughs> I'm still working on it folks <laughs> and I've read it about five times but uh, you know each time you read it I do pick up more I begin, it becomes part of me mm -hmm. you know I start realizing well yeah that's how it works and of course the big question free will versus determinism which is not just a physics question but a deep philosophical deep philosophical question, question which was about it quite a bit in here which was also answered by Ayn Rand and, and objectivism many years ago mm -hmm. and uh, something we'll certainly talk about here well that kind of wraps up the show for today and uh, remember uh, CHRW 94.9 FM is the only station in London that supports almost every style of music imaginable and plays the music that local artists create, as you'll hear after this show and for a lot of the rest of the day's programming. Electronic, folk, rock, world beat, music that you might not think is music, spoken word, hey, that's us, music beats, metal, blues, and country can all be found on CHRW. And, uh, you know, CHRW's charts get exported around the world and helps promote local artists and, and you know, wherever the music's played, on, on the radio, on the Internet. So remember, um, again, donations over $20. 
to CHRW, qualify for a tax receipt, call us at 519-661-3600. Pledge your support to CHRW. If the lines are busy, do please call again. And that's it for us this week as we head out of here for another week, and we hope you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, and think right. And be right back here. You too, Robert. <laughs> Take care. to black and white under the bedclothes everything will be alright so if a photon is directed through a plane with two slits in it and either slit is observed it will not go through both slits if it's unobserved it will however if it's observed after it's left the plane but before it hits its target it will not have gone through both slits agreed what's your point there's no point I just think it's a good idea for a (laughs) t-shirt